most vulnerable communities are located in areas that are not best, lots of land. So whenever there's a flood, a rainfall, a storm that's going to lead to flooding, this is going to disproportionately impact the most vulnerable community because their, their housing is located in the worst plus of land. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the podcast Gender and Climate. This is Annika. In this podcast, I interview experts about the nexus of gender and climate change and we discuss how people all around the world are affected. As we can only combat the climate catastrophe while achieving gender equality, my goal is to generate attention for the deeply interconnected topics of gender equality and climate justice. We need all hands on deck in order to overcome the crisis of our time, because only together we can change our world for the better. In this episode, I speak to Sofia Castelli. Sofia is the Director for Climate and Environmental Resilience at Think City, with a vast background in landscape architecture. She's also the co-founder of the NGO Mulieres in Arquitectura, empowering women in the public space and the architectural profession. In this episode, we discuss what's a climate catastrophe like in Malaysia, the nature-based climate adaptation plan for the urban areas of Penang Island she's conducting with her team and why women and girls need separate attention in climate adaptation programs. So, let's get started. Hi Sophia, I'm so happy to have you here today. Hi Anika, thanks for the invite. I'm so glad to have the opportunity today to talk with you about Malaysia. The place where you're living, right? Yes. Because uh, with that, we're already diving very much into the first question. I know that currently you're not in Malaysia. Where are you right now and where did you grow up? <laughs> so I'm actually right now, I'm in my hometown, Lisbon. I'm in a short sabbatical back home, you know, seeing friends and family and uh, finally trying to finish my PhD thesis. So I'm working in Malaysia. I'm working with Think City for three years now, I think. Before that, I lived and worked in China. I lived in Europe in several places in Europe. I lived a little bit in one year in France when I, I was uh, younger. And then I lived in the Netherlands. So I've, um, I've, I've grown used to travel and living in different countries. Yeah, basically, you're a globetrotter. <laughs> with a fable for Asia, isn't it? China, Malaysia? Maybe. <laughs> now that you're pointing it out, maybe. <laughs> I wanted to work in Asia for climate adaptation because for landscape architect, um, Southeast Asia in particular offers a much better natural setting uh, mm -hmm. to, to mitigate and adapt climate change mm -hmm. than Af most countries in Africa, you know, definitely than Europe. Why is that? And how is actually the situation of climate change, particularly in Malaysia? Um, so there are three areas in the world that are going to be more impacted by climate change. These areas are Sub-Saharan Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia has the advantage of having most of Southeast Asia equatorial or tropical climate. And so you can have plants growing very easily. And so you can use for a landscape architect focused on using nature-based solutions for climate change. Mm -hmm. It's very appealing. It is also very appealing to be working in a place that's more vulnerable. We're talking today about the topic of gender and climate change in Malaysia. 
what is the nexus like in Malaysia? I mean, what's the connection of climate change and gender equality? And that's a very good question. So women are disproportionately impacted by climate change. This is something that the UN has made absolutely clear that needs to be addressed. And actually most funding, most international funding for adaptation um, demands um, a gender component um, in adaptation projects. This happens for three main reasons. The first is that women have less economic power than men, uh, not only because of the gender, the, gender pay gap, but also because in Malaysia, for example, only 59% of women are in the workforce. Not only in Malaysia, all over the world, women have less. I don't think there's not, there's even one country in the world where women don't have less economic power than men. So this is the first reason why not only climate change, but any crisis impacts women more than men. The second reason is that women are the main caregivers of the family. Um, and in Malaysia, certainly more so than in Europe. Uh, what does this mean in the context of climate change? This means that whenever a disaster um, strikes the country, women are not only fleeing by themselves, but they are taking the family and this substantially slows them down. There, there are very specific health issues that disproportionately impact women as well as they are the main caregivers of babies and children and elderly. And there are two groups that are more impacted um, by heat stroke, um, babies and the elderly, because they have less capacity, their bodies have less capacity to self-regulate their temperature. So whenever there's a heat wave, women not only need to concern themselves with their um, safeguards, but they're running around taking care of um, issues impacting children and elderly. So you can see how this uh, very easily ac accumulates um, this, this amount of tasks and loads um, accumulate on women. The third reason um, why climate change disproportionately impacts women is that they are um, not represented in decision-making processes. And so there's no perspective. And, and there are very funny, well, funny, they're not funny stories, but they're interesting stories about how some decision-making processes in Malaysia reveal this lack of um, a gender perspective. During the, the first stage of the COVID-19 crisis in Penang, the Penang state government decided to distribute food baskets among the most vulnerable communities. So first step, they called the, the head of the family. And the head of the family is a male. Like 90% of the time, the, the, the head of the family is a male. And so they called the, the head of the family to ask what they needed in the kitchen. So most men don't know what's necessary in the kitchen. The second mistake they made was then they, they called the head of the family again to inform them of the distribution points in the state of Penang for the food baskets, for them to go and pick them up. So we have several organizations focusing on, on women that are partnering with us for the gender program of the Penang the climate adaptation program. And one of them told us 
that they found that approximately 30% of the food baskets never arrive home because they were, they've done some research and they found that food baskets were chained in, um, in uh, nearby shops for cigarettes or other stuff. But the thing is, we saw that this is not new, you know, with the, the micro law, we also saw that. So we know, we know that when money is disbursed directly to women, the family and the community thrives. And without, the, the funny thing is that I was telling this to my, uh, my female colleagues at Think City, and they were all laughing. Like, well, they were laughing because of the absurdness, the amount of steps that went wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they knew immediately they know because they, well, first of all, they are married, some of them, <laughs> and they know that their husbands have no idea what's, what's happening in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So, and this, so you can imagine this kind of process being applied to other crises. Um, this decision, this completely, this complete absence of uh, considerations on uh, regarding women and families, because again, as we were talking before <laughs> the interview, it's it's not only women that are impacted; the elderly is the most uh, that are disproportionately and children and children. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we see the points you mentioned everywhere in the world, basically. Um, but especially, of course, in, in in Southeast Asia. And you're working on the nature-based climate adaption program. Um, how was the process coming up with that program? Did you talk to people? And if so, can you can you share some some personal stories or uh, well, share with us? Um, well, how you came up with the program? Yeah, that, that was that was really very interesting. It was a very interesting process. Um, so the, the nature-based climate adaptation program for the urban areas of Penang Island um, was initiated in 2019, yes, around April. And we've started doing community engagements and, uh, and asking people, um, what they thought, what they were feeling in terms of changes in climate. And it was very interesting because, for example, there's the there's a, a lovely man um, in Penang, an arborist, an elderly arborist. And he people connected to the to the to the land or working in the environmental field, they, they know exactly what's going mm-hmm. on. So they have very close understanding. Of what's mm-hmm. happening. They say this, this tree species is blossoming much earlier than before. He was saying that there's there's this kind of storms that are horizontal. Mm-hmm. He was t- telling me that now they have like this horizontal lightnings. Sorry. He was seeing horizontal lightnings that he has never seen before. And, and we, we've done also focus groups and the workshops with community leaders, uh, government officials, business leaders. And it was fascinating to see that in the workshops and in the focus groups everyone highlighted floods and changes in rainfall patterns leading to flooding as the main concern for Malaysia but when we went to the community to the vulnerable communities to do community engagements on site it was the opposite mm-hmm. they all said that heat stress was a bigger concern mm-hmm. 
And it was very straightforward. It, they just said, listen, we're concerned with floods as well, but floods is once a year. Mm-hmm. Heat is every day. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the fact is this is absolutely revealing of the cause of the problem because people in work middle class, everyone in middle class lives in an air-conditioned bubble in Malaysia. As you know. Yeah. <laughs> I have haven't been know. there myself, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you not only uh, inhabit your place has air conditioned, but you are working in an air conditioned space. Yeah, well, you move from and... one air conditioned space to the other. Basically, you, yeah. you don't spend time outside of the air conditioning if you're middle class or higher. Yeah. Yeah. And also you have air conditioned transportation, yes. right? Yes. To have the, the, the full spectrum of air, air condition yeah. from home, comfort, transportation, and uh, work. Uh, vulnerable communities often don't have neither, neither work. Yeah, none of that, yeah. None of that. And also sometimes, think about this, sometimes vulnerable uh, men from, males from the vulnerable communities work in air conditioned spaces. But women, if only 59% of women are in the workforce, they stay at home um, without access to air conditioning, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. males. So it was very interesting because they, they just said this straight up. Yes, we are concerned with floods also, but it's once a year. We can live with that. Heat is all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I see that. And well, you, you just mentioned uh, the focus groups, the communities, the, the governmental sector. Um, I, would, I would like to know these groups, the people you talk to, um, what gender did they have? Was it equally represented, what, like were women and men equally represented? Or as we know, uh, the decision making is, oh, dominated by men um how was that in your in your yeah focus groups yeah in our in our community engagements we made a point of having at least 40 percent of women um we could uh, there was only one one of one type of community of engagement that we could not control which was the survey we had an online survey, yeah. but I think the online survey actually ended up having more women um, answering than than men. Um, but yeah, all the other ones had a minimum of forty percent of women. Yeah, and um, I am especially interested in in how your how your program is tackling the nexus of gender inequality and climate change because i mean the problem we have in malaysia we see in malaysia having the very like the heat and the floods and whatever we just talked about um we have that not only in malaysia but everywhere in the world and you told me that the program is somewhat nominated um i don't i don't remember exactly what's your program nominated for or nominated by or excellent as um however it was actually it was actually it won the award for the best climate program in the world in 2020 here we go here we go <laughs> so it could be a role model basically 
for for different uh, programs and that's why i'm super interested in how is um gender inequality and climate change represented in the program or better said how are you tackling that how what measures are you taking um yeah be, and just mm -hmm. share it because i really think that could be that could act as more or less role role program role model program <laughs> Thank you. That's that's very kind of you. Um, our, our, the program has four main components. So the first component is the nature-based solutions component. It's focused on reducing impacts of climate change in terms of heat stress and flooding due to changes in rainfall patterns by using nature-based solutions. Then it has, so heat stress and flooding. And then the fourth component is social vulnerability. And in terms of social vulnerability, we have baseline assessment of vulnerability. Um, we have the youth um, vulnerability component, and then we have the women and girls component. Um, and then the fourth component of the program is addressing gaps in institutional. Uh, one of these gaps is the lack of detection of heat stroke in hospitals in Malaysia. So you see how this can be impactful. Officially, there are no deaths by heat in Malaysia. Uh, we have the numbers of deaths by heat in Canada, mm -hmm. but not in Malaysia. So we have a pilot project for this. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the women and girls component, we have a structure of four pillars that must be addressed. The first is awareness. So um, the, first, the first thing is that people need to be aware of climate change and um, that climate change disproportionately impacts women and girls. The second pillar is knowledge. So besides being aware, we need to inform, to give more information about the risks, the precise risks they are facing. The thing with, with Malaysia and Malaysia's vulnerability with women is that most vulnerable communities are located in areas that are not in the best lots of land. So you know that whenever there's a, a flood, a rainfall a storm that's going to lead to flooding, this is going to disproportionately impact the most vulnerable communities because their, their housing is located in the worst uh, plus of land. So they need to be this. We're actually, they need to be informed of this. We're actually developing an app for people to inform if their location is at risk of being flooded in a specific moment. And then give them more direction, more guidance on spot. So this, this is the second pillar, knowledge. Then the third pillar is capacity building. So we need to build the capacity to address challenges. And this includes a peer-to-peer -peer support. For example, imagine there's a heat wave and uh, women caregivers of babies. This is a huge issue because... Babies are very vulnerable to heat. Mm -hmm. So they need to have the knowledge. They need to be aware. They need to have the knowledge. And the knowledge in this case means don't take your baby outside, put them away from windows. And capacity building is they need to get out of the house because they need to work or they need to do something. And we're giving them a peer-to-peer -peer support. Mm -hmm. This is the capacity building component. And then the fourth and final pillar is empowerment. And the empowerment component is very interesting, very interesting. Usually we had the 40% rule, uh, like the Penang, in the creation of the Penang Climate Court, 40%. I mean, 40% of 
um, representatives had to be women. But we understood at a certain point that we need to stop protecting or defending or speaking for vulnerable women or for women in general. We need to give them the tools to speak for themselves. So we've included a quota for vulnerable women in the Penang Climate Board as well. And we have a set of training working together with the local organizations working with women. We have a program for them for, to help them empower the natural leaders, mm -hmm. for them to speak up for the community. Yeah, I would have had the question, how are girls and women um, included and represented in the whole process? But you, you already... Um, yeah, answered that very well. So thank you for that. Um, Sophia, you're also the co-founder of your NGO, and my Portuguese is not the very best. I would like to ask you to to say the name again of your NGO, but I would like to ask you because in that NGO, you are empowering women in the public space and in the architectural profession. And before, just before we started the recording of this podcast, um, we were talking a little bit a little bit about women in the public space and architecture and how everything goes together and um, who is affected and who is not affected and how toilets look like, for example. Um, I would like to to ask you if you could just share your your main points or your what are you doing with this NGL? Why why women in the public space are so important to you? that you even founded an NGO about it um, and why architecture is for you the way to go for having a better world. Well, architecture is, I'm, my background is in landscape architecture. So uh, I, work in the, uh, I work in the public space and I can tell, uh, every woman can tell even if not as articulately as an, an architect, someone who studied the issue, we can all tell sometimes that the public spaces were not designed, um, including um, gender-related concerns. We were talking about this, this a very classic, the, 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 the most uh, simple example is public toilets. I mean, public toilets, if you look at blueprints of buildings, uh, public toilets for male and female, they have it precisely the same area. And we all know the jokes, you know, recurring jokes, oh, women take a long time in the bathroom, in the toilet, going to, and they go in pairs to the toilet, you know, <laughs> we've all heard these kind of jokes. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, Women and uh, men use the toilet in completely different ways. And women menstruate mm, every month. Um, and so the, the, the sheer fact that the areas allocated for males and females are the same shows there's a lack of understanding of gender-related issues. And obviously, yes, there are cues to the bathroom because bathrooms are not enough for women's needs. And, uh, and obviously, there's the issue of mobility and safety. Uh, there's something very, very, that's lately more and more interesting to me, is um, the issue of safety and how, you know, catcalling. Mm -hmm. I remember that there was a, a friend of mine, Duncan, from Think City as well, Think City Institute. He was moderating a discussion in KL with a rather large audience. 
about the, the, the issue of women safety in the public space. And I asked who in the audience, I asked for women in the audience who have never been catcalled in public spaces to raise their hands. And it was a very big audience and no one, no woman raised their hand. And, and, and Bacon was completely shocked. He had no idea. But the thing is, I knew that was going to happen. And probably you also know. <laughs> any woman would know, right? But the thing is, what I'm very interested in, now this is a little bit geeky, um, it's that what I'm, why I'm very interested in this is because I think that subconsciously, the women for so, women for so many centuries, women's domain was at home. Mm-hmm. A woman was, a proper woman should not be in the streets, you know? And so you, we actually even call, you know, what do we call prostitutes? We call them women of the street, right? Mm-hmm. So for so many centuries, a proper lady shouldn't be on the streets. And that's this kind of God found its way into our collective subconscious. And sometimes men, when they see women in the streets, they feel they are entitled because they feel like the space belongs to them and not to them. To, to women. To women. Mm-hmm. You know, you've never seen women are not catcalled in uh, in in inside a building, even if the building is public. Well, well, this can happen, shopping malls or whatever. But it's much more frequent that it happens in the streets, right? Yeah, and it's very interesting. I've never thought yeah, about that part actually. That's why I'm I'm saying it's a bit geeky uh, because I'm <laughs> I've kind of been, you know, I, I've, because it is true, you know, and you, and you can see this. This happened for centuries. I remember my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers kind of wanting me and my sisters not to go out a lot because a proper woman doesn't go out a lot, you know? No, of course I should go to school, but there's proper, there are things that the proper lady shouldn't do. And this, you go back, um, the more you go back, um, the more you see this. You know, this, this thing about women belonging in the, and even the fashion, if you, <laughs> you could do a, a PhD thesis on fashion, how fashion was, had centuries that were concerned about constraining women's movements, right? So they wouldn't, because they were not supposed to be walking in the streets, they were supposed to be sitting at home doing like um, um, limited activities. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting, Sophia. <laughs> Well, I actually never thought about these points. So this is just a discussion about how, how this public space is designed, mm-hmm. right? How is the public and awareness of the public space? Issues of safety, mostly issues of mobility, because women don't, very often women move, have constraints to their movement. And this is something we find in the evaluations of disasters, the outcomes of disasters, that women's mobility is much more constrained than male mobility. Mm. And we can also see this in other ways, like for example, in the migration crisis in the Mediterranean, the majority are male because women cannot flee the same way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in, the, in uh, Mulheres na Arquitetura, that's the way you say it in Portuguese. <laughs> No, this is a discussion. There are other, there's, there's a, I'm not in charge of this program, but it's very interesting in which the, it's called Women in Construction, mm-hmm. where they're training women of um, 
more vulnerable uh, backgrounds to perform tasks like plumbing, electrician. They, they teach women to perform these tasks. And it's a very interesting program. And actually, I would love to do it if I was not so busy <laughs> because I know cleaning up electricity uh, or plumbing, but kind of deconstructing stereotypes mm -hmm. and also finally addressing the issue of how women architecture is a very male profession. And it's a, a profession that's it kind of it's it's one of the professions that's most guided by this hero narrative we are facing, like the lone leader, you mm -hmm. know, the lone artist. And it's it's much you see that famous female architects, we only have that basically. Like in Brazil, they have Lina Bobardi, you have some, but most famous. Almost all star architects, which is a movement that, yeah, which is a movement that's finally, hopefully, we're seeing, we're beginning to see the end of it. But most star architects are male. And that's, and that's the narrative, the lone genius on top. Mm -hmm. Never a collective, right? It's always the, and this, this, this narrative, it's not only in architecture, but it's very strong for us. Mm -hmm. So we've now talked about different crises. We talked about climate change in Malaysia. We talked about your program, nature-based uh, solutions for Penang Islands. And we talked about architecture and how the public space would need to change, would need to, to change for, for, in order to be accessible as well for women. Which recommendations would you give people in the decision-making positions to overcome or to break the nexus of gender and climate? Well, um, there are so many recommendations, but there's one that um, covers them all, which is everything you do, be guided by science. Be guided by what the evidence is telling us. Mm. And again, we, we talked about how evidence in some countries show that uh, rape Uh, rates almost double in a disaster. So in our program, we have uh, the creation of sh temporary shelters for women after um, a disaster. Mm -hmm. So th this would be integrated into the plat disaster risk reduction platform. Mm -hmm. But just look at the evidence and design accordingly. Mm -hmm. Be science-driven. Because there are, there's obviously there's much to be done in different areas. Um, but if you have a science-driven approach, you cannot go wrong. Thank you very, very much for this very nice talk. You're very welcome. Thank you. All the best to you, Anika. This is a really fascinating topic. So I'm pretty sure you're going to be very busy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please make sure to hit the bell to not miss any episode, because only together we can change our world for the better.